Welcome to Deep Dive MH370, Episode 12, Descent. Hello again, I'm Andy Tarnoff, the publisher and founder of On Milwaukee, and I'm joined by Jeff Wise, aviation journalist and MH370 expert. Hey Jeff, how was your holiday? Are you ready to make Episode 12? I've been dying to make Episode 12. My holidays were good, but I missed this podcast. It's so much fun talking about this very important topic with you. Last time we talked about the first half of how the authorities decided where to look on the southern seabed. They just they had to look they had to decide how wide along the seventh arc to look. And today we're going to talk about how far from the seventh arc they wanted to look. They had to decide how far could the plane have gone from the place where it gave them their last transmission, the last known a transmission that they made before the plane went completely dark for the rest of time. And so it's, it's a pretty easy walk, actually, I think. And once we have done that, once we've established exactly how the authorities knew where they were going to find this plane, then we can back up. And for the next episode, we can start to, to look at this whole case from a different lens. We've been talking all along about how there's two different lenses that you can look at the mystery of MH370 through. One is to assume that the data is as completely untainted, just it comes from the electronic equipment and it was interpreted correctly by the authorities and it basically says what it means. The other lens is the more controversial one, which is to say, look, there was a vulnerability in the plane. It's a fairly uncontroversial idea. And what if that vulnerability had been exploited by some kind of crafty, malicious character who then tampered with the evidence and what would that mean for where the plane went? That's what we're going to talk about next time. We're going to kind of go onto the parallel track on this investigation. But for today, we're going to stick on the, on the original track, which is understanding why the authorities thought that they knew where to look. It's almost plane. like we need to button this up a little bit because uh, people yeah. have been – we've been listening to the feedback. We've been answering mm-hmm. people's comments. We've, we know what people think, and, and they, they, yeah. some of them are like, all right, let's go with this thing. And, and our attitude is we can't just say, here's what might have happened if we don't lay the groundwork. But in the last 11 episodes, we've been doing just that. So to, to me, this is right. the one where we say, all right, here's how it could have happened, and here's what the people think it happened. Right. And then starting next week, we start to talk about the other stuff. So, yeah, yeah. so where did we end things on episode 10? Because episode so, 11, we talked more about the scientific method, but but now we're talking about this, where did it travel from the point that it impacted the water? So we were talking about how the authorities used a new kind of version of the scientific method to try to understand the totality of the possible scenarios that could have given rise to the signals that they received. And they said, okay, we're going to use some statistical techniques to generate a probability heat map of where the plane might have been on the seventh arc when it made that last transmission. Okay. Okay. So it was somewhere on the seventh arc, and we, if we accept a certain like level of confidence that we want to say, okay, it's, there's a 99% chance that it was somewhere along this particular stretch of the seventh arc. Now, how far do we need to look beyond? Because it's unlikely that it like plummeted straight down and went right into right. the ocean there. But listen, we, that's probably the most likely scenario. Planes, if we look at, for example, Air France 447 and other similar uh, accidents, Planes tend to hit the ground pretty close to their last transmission. No matter what the cause of the accident is, 
things tend to unfold very rapidly in airplane accidents. And so when you get to the point where you're sending your last transmission, things are usually in such a bad state that you don't really get too much further than that. So right, the thing I think, the first thing to understand is that the most likely location for this plane probably is right underneath the seventh arc. It probably didn't go very far at all. So when you send down those robot subs and when you're scanning the seabed with your sonar, your side scan sonar, you're going to mo- that's where you're going to start. And as you get progressively further out, your probability is going to go lower and lower and okay. lower. So what we need to ask ourselves is, okay, what was happening at the time of the seventh arc? And then from that, let's try to figure out, okay, if that's what was happening, what did the plane likely do after okay. that point? Now, because it gave a signal, the plane is still in the air. That's the first thing we know. The plane is not yet broken up into a million pieces. So it's in the air. What is its state in the air? Now, one thing we need to talk about, you and I were talking about this earlier, Andy, is that the we've already seen so, – so when the plane was on the ground in Kuala Lumpur, before it took off, the plane, you know – was just resting there. It was turned off. You know, it was waiting to go on its on this flight. And so then, you know, the ground crew came and turned on the, the and the flight crew came and they turned on the plane. They got ready to fly. The engine spooled up. The electronics turned up, turned on, and the plane contacted Inmarsat through the satellite. And this is the first time that the satcom was turned on. Normally, that's all you get the, with almost practically every flight you've ever been on. Every flight that's up in the air right now, every single flight starts, logs onto the SATCOM, and then it's on the SATCOM the whole time until it lands. This flight is different. It didn't log on one time, as is normal. It logged on three times. So let's okay. talk about so, why So that, that was is. at 1642, right, when it took off at that point. It took off at 1642 universal, universal time. time. So a little after midnight right. local time. But we're going to stick to universal time. That's That makes sense because... The time zones would be changing so much that it would be a little confusing if we started talking about Kuala Lumpur. Yeah, it's confusing yeah, enough. It's confusing enough. So yeah. we're going to stick with universal time. So a, a flight right. that would take five and a half hours would have enough fuel to keep it flying until 0012. Right. So a little bit after midnight universal time is more or less, it depends. The fuel burn depends on how fast it's going, the altitude it's flying at, headwinds, tailwinds, that sort of thing. So it's only a rough estimate. But about zero, zero. How um, much extra fuel do they put in a plane? I mean, you know, you always assume that there's some extra, but enough to keep it going for, you know, a little bit after the predicted flight path? You carry excess fuel. You don't want to run out of fuel just as you're, like, touching your wheels down on the runway. You need to have a safety margin, and you need to take into account that you your airport that you're going to might be socked in. You might not be able okay. to land. Weather conditions might not allow, so you have to go somewhere else. So they generally carry, you know, let's say 45 minutes. I don't have the exact figure in front of me, but it's something okay. of that order. So this plane had plenty of fuel to get to Beijing, had a healthy safety margin. So it, was, it, was, it had enough fuel to stay in the air well past its scheduled arrival okay. time. Okay, so so the plane took off. As we know, it didn't proceed as normal. It turned back. It did a U-turn at 17.21. Around that exact same time, it went electronically dark. I think we can assume that the SATCOM 
went was turned off sometime around that time as well. And then at 1825, we get this all crucial event, which is the SATCOM got turned back on. Now, this is now the second time that the plane has reached out to Inmarsat and said, hi, I want to communicate on your network. Can I join? And of course, the network said, sure. Now, the plane is flying. It's transmitting these signals. As we've discussed, two incoming telephone calls came. They were not answered. But it, the receipt of that call, of those calls, caused the timer to reset. So the plane that was started counting down an hour until the system wanted to recheck on it. Okay, and so the next thing that happens, and what's very relevant to our discussion today, is at 011, which is one minute before like the authorities expect... Yeah. It's fuel to run out later when they're doing yeah. the math later. So at 011, it makes its last kind of normal scheduled ex- handshake exchange with the Inmarsat satellite. Okay, can you explain why it would have turned off shortly after 011? Okay, so, right. So it did. So you're kind of jumping the gun here oh, a little bit. But yeah, it did basically. No, it's okay. So at 011, it makes its normal transmission. And then at 019, it says, once again, hi there, I want to join the network. Now, why would it say I want to join your network? It was already yeah. on the network. Because on the plane, something must have happened. The box must have gotten turned off again. So this is now the second time during this flight that the, that the box was turned off and then turned back okay. on again. And so, okay, let's t- so there are these, this, this weird thing has happened twice. This thing that normally doesn't happen at all has now happened twice. The second time is what I have tried to thump the tub by saying it's really hard to explain why this happened. We don't know why it happened. But the third time, there actually is a pretty normal explanation for why for sure. it might have happened. Not normal in the sense that it happens all the time because what happened was probably really strange in the sense that the you know as, I, as we talked about at the start of this episode – there's two lenses you can look at this yeah. mystery through. And the first one is that it's kind of all the data that was, trans- through the SAT, was transmitted through the SATCOM was, tr- was, was reflecting a normal state of reality. It was just these, are the, these systems were, were operating as designed. And so in that case, if all these systems are operating as designed, there is a, a readily available explanation for why the satellite communication system got turned back on, which is this. Okay. The plane, as we know, was close to running out of fuel around this time. Let's say it did run out of fuel. First one engine runs out of fuel, and then very soon the other engine is going to run out of fuel because they're kind of coming from different tanks. Now you have neither engine running, and so you're no longer generating thrust that's pushing you through the air and letting you maintain your speed and altitude. But there's also another effect, which is each of these engines is driving a generator, which is providing power to the 777's electrical systems. Now, remember, the 777 is Boeing's first all-electric airplane. It, you, you can't control anything if you don't have electricity. And to, because the Boeing engineers are very aware of that, they built multiple redundant systems to make sure that this plane had electricity, yeah. even in the worst-case scenarios like this. The engines aren't turning anymore. Where's your electricity going to come from? And I th- we were talking about this earlier. You, you know what happens next. Yeah. I mean, it's probably like a car. I mean, when you're <laughs> the battery, well, I guess in a car, you'd have a little bit of extra juice. But I mean, if your engine isn't running, you're not powering. Right, your alternator, yeah, your alternator dies. dies. And then your, your electrical stuff stops working. 
Yeah, but an airplane is a little bit different from a car. And so what happens is when your generators stop in this 777, what happens is this, there's this emergency device pops out. It's called the RAT, yes. the Ram Air yes. Turbine. And it's a bit, it looks kind of like an outboard motor, but it works in the reverse of a motor. It's a, like a, actually a windmill. So it uses the plane's motion through the air to drive a little windmill which runs a generator, and the generator is your immediate backup supply. And what happens is it doesn't have enough power to run everything. It's like a tiny little pony motor. But it drives enough essential systems that the pilots can control the plane. And this, and so another it powers the start of another backup emergency system called the APU, or the Auxiliary Power okay. Unit. And this is a turbine that sits in the tail of the aircraft. It's a little bit like an engine, but it's it's a generator. Really, it doesn't yeah. generate thrust. I was equating it to sort of like in a hybrid car, or an electric car with a regenerative braking. So, so like that, just the act of braking is what generates power. Yeah, it's very so. The Rat, the Ram Air Turbine, that's a bit like regenerative braking. Both systems use the momentum of the vehicle to create electricity. Okay. And then in the case of the Ram air turbine, it, some of that electricity is diverted to starting up the turbine. And then once that turbine is running, you have pretty much normal electrical power. So you're kind of back to normal. And all the systems that had got, gotten shut down to shed load can be repowered, one of them being the SATCOM. So, and it, but it takes a little while for the all of these things to happen it's like a sequence of events it's like you know when you when you're, so basically you get have to get the rat has to deploy then the apu needs to spool up and then the electronic box has to turn back on so it takes about three or four okay. minutes something on that okay. order and so working backwards it seems like there a very good explanation for why this plane had to log back onto nmarsat for the third yeah. time was that they lost engine power due to fuel exhaustion, and then the SATCOM had to reboot. And probably that meant that the aircraft probably ran out of, it ran out of fuel um, probably about, let's see, it was 011 to 019. It was probably like 016 or something, or 15 minutes past the hour, something in that area. So the plane, so... Why have I just gone through this whole rigmarole? Because so what was happening to this plane at 019 as it's logging back on? Well, for one thing, it has been out of engine power for the last five minutes, more or less. That means it's been losing speed and or altitude. So a plane, so the plane is now essentially a glider. There's no more energy being put into its forward motion. And so as a glider... It's constantly losing energy. That energy can be can express either as altitude or as speed. And it can exchange those things at different rates. If you pull the nose up, you might even gain a little bit of altitude, but you're going to lose a lot of right. speed. If you put the nose down, you're going to lose altitude but gain speed. So we don't really know just from these facts alone whether the plane was climbing or descending or speeding up or slowing down. But what we do know is that it's steadily so losing So you're energy. a pilot. And it's energy. That and, and you've yeah. even been 
you've even been in gliders. I mean, it, and I think the average yeah. layman just doesn't really understand this stuff. Like if a plane is flying at 40,000 feet at full speed, like you got a couple minutes before it falls out of the sky, right? When it's in glider mode. They later did calculations and figured that it's possible that even at the final seventh arc at 019, when the plane had already been without engine power for five minutes, it still could have glided if the pilot was like a glider pilot and like knew the best speed to glide at, could have gone 100 miles. Wow. Maybe even a little more okay. than 100 miles, which is really far. And so if that's what happened, they are then the search authorities are in a bad state. They have a truly vast area of ocean that needs yeah. to look yeah. However, is there any reason to think that's what happened? What other clues were there that might have shed some light on this? Now, when the thing first happened and the, and the authorities had gotten to this part of the logical process and they were trying to figure out where to look for it, they thought that the most likely scenario, because it seems so crazy that you would like fly into the southern Indian Ocean to commit suicide and just sit there for six long yeah. hours waiting for this thing to run out of fuel, when you could just point it in the ocean sure. and be done with it, they thought it was most likely that nobody was at the controls. It was some kind of a ghost flight scenario. So they did some simulations with Boeing and they saw what would happen if the plane, if you just took your hands off the plane, it has no power, like it, it has no more. Eventually, you, you even so the reason that the APU is able to generate electricity, even though the planes run out of fuel, is that there's still some residual fuel in the feed line going into the APU. So that's not going to last for very long. And so within a couple of minutes, that fuel is going to run out too. The APU is going to stop. You're going to lose all, all your electricity. You have a little bit of battery power too. But before too long, you're going to lose everything. This plane is just going to be in, like a completely uncontrolled Yeah. So airframe. actually I have a question about that too. And I don't yeah. know. Maybe sure. you don't know the answer to this. But it's, let's just assume, assume the plane was on autopilot. Does the autopilot know how to maximize how far you get to go when you run out of fuel? Or it, There's different – there. That's a really good question. There is different autopilot settings. You can set it to fly at a certain speed. You can fly it to hold a certain altitude. You can fly. You can program it um, to descend to an airport. Um, as far as I know, like so, in gliding, it's called best glide speed. If you're trying to get as far as you can, you want to trim your aircraft for that particular speed. I don't think that's something that you know. Despite Captain Sullenberger's yeah, yeah. you know famous need to glide the thing. Uh, into the Hudson, it's not a normal thing that a that an airline captain wouldn't need to okay. know how to do. And so, no, I th I think you would have to sort of hand fly it down if you wanted to, if you did want to stay like al alive as long as possible. Okay, sorry for that aside. I just kind of um, wondered, like, no, 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 is no, the autopilot really so smart that it knows how to like try to prevent you from crashing, or does it just kind of go? But in this yeah, case, it kind of doesn't matter, I suppose. Right. So when, once the whole thing ran out of fuel, the rat would deploy. The rat presumably is still deployed and it's still generating that minimal set of electricity that allows you to control the flight surfaces and so okay. forth. But anyway, so back to our story, the, the authorities are thinking, OK, most likely this is a ghost flight scenario. Most likely nobody's at the controls. What happens if you just stop responding to you stop trying to fly the plane? What happens is that the plane tilt, it starts to tilt. And when it starts to tilt, it goes into a spiral and the nose goes down and it goes into a spiral dive. Hmm. And you're not really making, 
you're not really going in a straight line anymore. You're kind of like circling a spot on the ocean, and then and eventually you hit the surface. And assuming that they they were able to calculate that it would have stayed within like a certain like thirty miles of the of the seventh arc. Again, it's a probabilistic thing. It's sort of susceptible to the butterfly effect. Like if there's a gust of wind, it might tilt the wing a little more, a little less. What they would do is simulation after simulation and try to see like, okay, if we run it 50 times, how often does it go more than 30 miles? And so they were able to convince themselves that like, if this is a ghost flight scenario, the plane probably didn't get very okay. far. I would say that this happened, that this does, we know that this happens in real life. There was a sure. case over this summer in 2023 where a plane a citation business yeah. jet got into a kind of a ghost flight scenario. We don't really know why. The, the pilot might have had a heart attack or they might have had a depressurization. But the plane flew in a straight line on autopilot until it ran out of fuel and it did a spiral dive. So for some sort of reason of physics, when a plane runs out of fuel, it doesn't just fall into the ocean at, at, a, at a perfect uh, you know, attitude. Is that the... Right. Once it's out of control, it does not... St- Stay going straight. You actually have to hold a plane straight. It won't stay straight if you're not holding it straight. So, but then as time went by, they 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 found another okay. clue. Actually, they found a couple yeah. of different clues. But a, a really important clue was that. So we've we've also talked about um, how they used this this part of the metadata called the burst frequency right. offset or BFO. And they did some very fancy, complicated math that took us a whole episode to explain as to how it proved that the plane went into the southern Indian Ocean. And that was based on all of the previous six pings. The seventh ping turned out to have really weird BFO values. And at first, they were just like couldn't make heads or tails of how they got these really weird BFO values. But finally, they made sense of it. And this is what they recognized. The BFO is generated in such a way that it compensates for the airplane's motion in the horizontal plane, meaning you're flying around the world sort of more or less at a level altitude, and it's compensating for your motion east, west, north, and south. It doesn't compensate for vertical velocity. Normally, you don't have that much vertical velocity, so it's not a big deal. But in this case, they realized, wait a minute. If these strange BFO values are a result of the plane's vertical motion, that means that it was in a, in a dive that became an even steeper dive. Okay. So, in fact, its dive, it becomes so steep so quickly that it wasn't a ghost flight. In fact, this must have been somebody pushing forward on the controls to generate these kind of BFO values. So now they're like, okay, this now there's even a greater chance that this is within 30 miles of this of the seventh arc. So now they're thinking, okay, and it might be right there at the seventh arc. We don't, you know, that's probably the most likely place. And so now, using these pieces of evidence and assuming that, as I said, these everything we've talked about in the last 20 minutes is premised on the assumption that this data was generated as a result of the equipment on the plane operating as it was intended and without anybody tampering with it or fooling with it. And so, and that, by the way, is the assumption that the entire search, that the entire, that that the official explanation for what happened to this plane is all premised on this idea that this data was produced innocently. It was produced by the machines okay. themselves without any kind of human intervention. And so now, the, so as the ships went, sailed out from port 
in the fall of 2014, actually the spring, because they have opposite seasons from us. But in October of 2014, the ships are sailing out into the ocean, and this is where they're going to look. We know where on the seventh arc this plane, this plane probably was, almost certainly was, when it sent its last transmission. And we know that it's almost certainly within a certain distance of the seventh arc. So this is why the authorities, again, and this is something we've hit again and again. This is the very first start of the first episode was talking about how confident the authorities were. We know one of these mornings we're going to wake up and we're going to find that these ships that are scanning the seabed are, will have found the plane. And in another episode <laughs> to come in the future, we're going to talk about how that search unfolded. But we have some other things to talk about before we get there. But at this point in our story, we now understand why the authorities thought the plane went into the southern Indian Ocean and why they thought they had a really good chance of finding it because they knew how to define a search box that gave them what they took to be a 97% probability of locating this plane so 23,000 square miles is where they decided to look and right it's hard for me to imagine what 23,000 square miles uh, equates to but I mean that's a humongous amount of water to look for it's 23,000 square miles is a lot of water to look at it's not well I mean the okay to spoiler alert they wound up looking in an area much bigger than that. They wound up looking in an area many times larger than that that wound up equating to the size of Great Britain. So, but that itself, I mean, listen, this is an area that's like over a thousand miles from the nearest land. It's three miles deep. It's in one of the most notoriously stormy stretches of ocean in the world. And they were using technology that was still pretty new, and nothing like this had ever been tried before. Something similar had been tried had, had been carried out with Air France 447 back in 20, 2009 to 2011, but that was a much easier task compared to this. So this is much worse. So we'll talk about what a daunting task it was, but it, it seemed like, okay, we're going to have to ask the taxpayers to give us some money to do this, and, and we're going to hire these contractors to do it for us, but it's money well spent. Because we're quite confident the mathematics has told us in no uncertain terms where this plane is. And we're very confident that we know where it is. It's pretty amazing. We are going to take a pause for next week and kind of center ourselves. Because as we begin to talk about this alternative situation, we've got some experts lined up. We... A one, one week in between episodes is not enough time for us to, to well to really we've been, get that. that we've been proceeding at a blistering going. pace. It's been a blistering pace, and Andy, you have carried the lion's share of the weight on your shoulders. You've been the one who's been figuring out the software. Neither of us has done a video podcast before this, so it's been a learning curve, and it's been a steep one. And you've been most doing most of the learning. And it, I don't think we've had a single episode where there wasn't some malfunction or some part of the process that didn't go to plan and took a lot more time. Yeah. So yeah, yeah we're going to take true. a break. I mean, our goal is definitely to do this every single week because we have a lot of ground to cover. But as Andy is saying, the next episode we're going to tackle is a really big one. We've laid out why there was a vulnerability. And so in the next episode, which is going to drop in two weeks, we are going to explore the ramifications for that possibility. If this exploit 
was exploited, if this vulnerability was taken advantage of, what happened to the plane? It turns out to be very different yeah. from what we've just been talking about today and the previous episode. It's going to be a good one, and it's going to be worth waiting an extra week for. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to be continuing to talk through the comments, engage on all the many platforms on which this video and audio podcast exists, which you know the one you're watching on. It could be YouTube. It could be Facebook. It could be Apple Music. It could be Spotify. It could be Amazon Music. Oh, but I mean, it, now we're everywhere, okay? And I, yeah. I always think the video podcasts are a little bit more interesting than the audio podcasts because you actually see the graphics we're talking about. But yet the other yeah. place you can engage with us is on our website, which is deepdivemh370.com. But we're keeping, yeah. we're keeping an eye on all of these different platforms, and I, I'm hoping this brief week off gives us a chance to interact even more and to, to, to get some ideas as we jump into episode 13. This thing's really moving yeah. along. So obviously it, it, you got to do all those things. Been, you got to do that liking and subscribing and, yeah. and commenting and stuff because it keeps us going, right, Jeff? Yeah. Ask us your questions. Tell us your um, – is this uh, – it's amazing to me, as we're doing this, we're really learning the process as we go, but I think we now are getting a much more concrete sense of how many episodes we're going to do to take us to a place where I think the viewers really will have what feels like a comprehensive sense of what might have happened to this plane. And the story is also unfolding in real, continues to unfold in real time out in the world. There was just a whole brouhaha involving video that supposedly showed UFOs. We've talked about this before, but it's continued to be a brouhaha and new experts are coming along with new insights to share. We're going to bring that all to you guys. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your support. People who join us on Substack, deepdivema370.com, can support us by um, subscribing and paying money. Uh, I think you can pay whatever you want, but there's like a, a certain suggested level. And that's really helpful and really encouraging to us. So thank you for that. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your support. And uh, yeah, we look forward to coming back to you in two weeks and hitting a really exciting episode about what would have happened if I'm this plane's vulnerability was exploited. All right, Jeff. Thanks again. Thanks, Andy.